Welcome to the Forge America Missional Podcast, where we discuss faith, mission, the church, and the intersection of all three. Today on The Interview, we have the honor to host Michael Frost from Sydney, Australia. Michael is an internationally known and recognized Australian missiologist and one of the leading voices in the missional church movement. His books are required reading in college and seminaries around the world, and he is a much sought-after international conference speaker. You can check him out at mikefrost.net. Thanks for listening, and we're glad you're joining us at the interview. Welcome to the interview. My name is Alan Bradford in Knoxville, Tennessee, and with me today is Brenna from Albany, Oregon. How are you doing, Brenna? Doing great. Yep. And also with us is Terry from Austin, Texas. Terry, how's it going? Uh, it's going fine. <laughs> it's going fine. We went from great to great to fine. Okay. It's convincing. <laughs> it's because we're recording in the evening. Yes. I'm, I'm yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And there's a good reason yes. why. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There is a good reason why, because today we do have with us, uh, we're honored to have with us Michael Frost in Sydney, Australia. Mike, it's great to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. And you didn't ask how I'm going. <laughs> I was getting there. Oh, I was you getting there. Michael, how are things in the future, man? Because it is Thursday morning for you as we record this on a Wednesday night. How are things there? It's terrible. So we're going to go from great to fine. I thought I should continue. Like, oh, it's miserable. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. It's good. Good. Well, you know, every time you've always talked about Sydney, it's always been into the best place in the world. And, you know, so I, I would figure there's no way it could ever be terrible there. Well, I have discovered that in the middle of a pandemic, it ain't so great. Um, but, you know, that's all over, isn't it? But yeah, I mean, yeah, Sydney's Sydney's shut down. And we've been in lockdown. This is our 14th or 15th week with stay-at-home orders. So it's, uh, it, although... October 11 is Freedom Day, so everyone's like hanging out for that to happen. But um, yeah, no, it's been miserable. Although I do feel like I've, it's, I feel a bit like I'm, I'm living out the Stockholm syndrome because like the first few weeks, I, I mean, I hated it. I, and I actually kind of went through a whole kind of like depression, like misery kind of experience, and then I kind of had to kind of get some practices in place to kind of elevate my mood. And, and but now after 14, 15 weeks, I'm like. I don't know if I want to go out. I'm kind of happy here, you know. <laughs> I've, I've fallen in love with my captor. <laughs> what I can't wait to hear about is in about nine to ten months, uh, the amount of baby boom that you guys are going to have in Australia is going to be pretty impressive. You guys are going to have one heck of a population here pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. One heck of a population and a totally devastated economy. So, you know, it should be great. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, Mike, again, thank you for joining us. And obviously, we're here. This is the Forge America Missional Podcast. You had a uh, instrumental part in starting Forge. And so we're very grateful to you as one of the, I don't know, should we call you the godfather? The, one of the godfathers of Forge. It's, it's great. I was introduced somewhere once as the grandfather of Forge. I was like, yeah, no, I think I prefer godfather, actually. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You are a grandfather. Congratulations. But oh, we'll yes. call you the godfather of Forge. I think that's, yeah, I like that better. Um, so I, I kind of had a question, you know, when you, you guys created Forge, was it about 20 plus years ago now? Yeah. Alan and I, Alan Hirsch, sorry. And I, and uh, our, our partners went away for a, a week to a, a little cabin on the South coast of 
my state, New South Wales, and there was a big wooden table and we had like butcher's paper and like, yeah, with like Sharpies, we just sort of drew arrows and boxes and put words in and ideas and developed a curriculum. And yeah, it was pretty rough actually. And, but somehow there must've been some kind of genius to it because it's pretty much what we came up with, certainly in, in structure, is pretty much what still happens, you know, 20 odd years later. So, yeah, yeah, I had no clue at that table then we were creating something that, uh, well, that I'd be talking to someone, you know, in the United States about, let alone that there should be hubs all over the place. So last 20 years, so my, one of my questions for you is be, would be, what would you love to see Forge in the next 10 plus years? What would you love to see Forge doing in these next... Let's just say 10 years. Firstly, I should preface any answer I make about the future that I'm a really bad futurist and I <laughs> I don't actually trust other futurists. So anyone who tells me what it's going to be like in the next whatever years, i always like, maybe. So you can have the same attitude about anything I come up with. But I think that uh, definitely in terms of the whole missional conversation, Notions around the idea of being sent and understandings of incarnational engagement and uh, taking culture seriously and engaging in the world and kind of reversing the come to us stance that was so part of kind of the church growth kind of world from back in the 70s, 80s, 90s and what have you. Um, it feels like a lot of those ideas are entrenched um, definitely in the community that kind of gathers around the ideas that are associated with Forge and the missional conversation. But I also feel like there is a real need for uh, any engagement in mission to also take seriously the questions or whether existential or practical questions that the culture is asking. And of course, we're in a time now where issues uh, related to um, gender and sexuality and um, abuse of male power, patriarchy, uh, systemic racism, poverty. I mean, it's not possible for us to ignore those in the same way I think that the church growth movement, which was chiefly white and middle class and a come to us kind of mentality, a tractional kind of mentality, was able to ignore them because you can create kind of islands of alternative realities, I suppose. But engagement in culture incarnational living means that you can't avoid the questions or the concerns or anxieties or, or legitimate protests that people might make about the way the world ought to be, uh, particularly when they align with values of the kingdom around e equity and justice and peacemaking and the like. So I would think that they would have to be really significant uh, aspects of going forward for the, the whole missional conversation. One of the things I've always really just admired and appreciated about um, the, the way you think, Mike, is is the the intentionality and the values that you really do put on, like the idea of the kingdom characteristics and, and things like that. And so, uh, one of the reasons why we were we were excited to have you join us um, for the podcast this season is talking about the idea of of measurements. You know, I think this is something that we are constantly hearing. Uh, from a, a wide variety of, of pioneers, planters, from uh, and pastors as well, is how do we actually measure these things? And you've always tied, you know, kingdom values to how we measure things. And so, can you? I'd love to hear just some of your thoughts. I know when you planted Small Boat, um, uh, the church that you'd planted years ago, 
there were some things that you were doing there that I thought was pretty groundbreaking back then that I'm, I mean, I, I remember reading in exiles and just being blown away with some of the things that you shared there. Uh, can you share a little bit about that and how, uh, how you measured success and movement and those sorts of things? Um, well, yeah, I guess I would say, and this is not, these are not my ideas, but I would say that, that kind of the notion of mission or missional and, understanding of kingdom or the reign of God are inextricably linked. They're not, you know, I'm into one and maybe the other. It's like the whole notion of mission is to alert people to the reign of God. They, that, that's the point of of, uh, of the mission of God's people. So uh, without a thoroughgoing understanding of and commitment to uh, the kingdom and the values of the kingdom, and the contours and shape and landscape of, of, of the reign of God, without a clear understanding of what that's all about, I'm not sure what you think you're doing in terms of being missional, that they, that they don't co-align. So uh, I, I certainly understand that you know, part of, of the kingdom is that Jesus is the king and an announcement of his kingship and alerting people to his reign and his sacrifice and his love and and relationship with him, which has been very central in the evangelical church world movement, is connected to kingdom. But I think we need to broaden that so that we understand, well, it is about the announcement of the king. It is about uh, inviting people to uh, uh, swear, as it were, allegiance to him or to offer one's whole self uh, over to his kingship. But that also involves entry into this this reign of his sovereign will and what does that look like and i think that's where there's often been a disconnect in in lots of churches like we want to introduce people to jesus but maybe not so much his kingdom but the weird thing about that as i was just saying before was in our world at the moment it feels like everyone is searching for yearning for the very things that jesus talks about are part of the kingdom but they don't want the king so we've got people yearning for the kingdom, but we don't care that much about whether Jesus is part of it. And on the other hand, you've got people saying, follow Jesus, but we don't know that much about what his kingdom is about. And bringing those things together, I think, is you know absolutely essential, essential part of the mission of God's people to, to be able to help people to see, you know, you're yearning for justice or equity or uh, you're yearning for the end of poverty or for healing or joy or p- whatever it might be. These are the very things that Jesus promises and invites us to commit to. So um, in that regard, it's not just something you need to talk about, although it'll involve that. It also involves you know, modeling this, being a people who actually live into these things, that offering oneself under the allegiance of King Jesus is to say, shape me to become more a servant in your kingdom, to be made in the image that you desired us to be and to reflect and to live out and to embody what it means to be kingdom people. And that involves, as I said, justice, peace, healing, a whole new way of understanding family, a whole new way of understanding community, uh, an experience of the, of the, the deep and abiding and intimate presence of God, not far and away, but with us. All of these things are aspects of the reign of God. So in that regard, uh, long-winded answer to get to the question about measurements, surely then we need to be asking ourselves not how many more people are coming to our meetings if we hold them, but there would be questions around to what degree am I becoming more just 
to what degree are we as a community of faith becoming more a, com a community of justice? And to what degree are we helping people to understand the justice of God and to likewise align themselves to those values? And you can do that, as I said, on all those other values, on peacemaking or on, uh, on, on joy or, or healing. Uh, am I being healed? What does healing look like in my life, in my body, psychologically and emotionally? And what does it look like for us as a community to be a, a healed or healing community? And how do we then invite people to experience or to commit to healing likewise in our community? I mean, in that regard, it's kind of multi-layered. So you, yeah, I think those are the kinds of measurements that you're wanting to explore. I mean, are we seeing these things being played out or are people aligning their lives more and more with those kinds of things? And it doesn't make you a Christian if you don't love or know Jesus, but you are committed to justice. That doesn't make you a Christian, but boy, it puts you a whole lot closer to being open to who Jesus is and what the rest of his kingdom is all about. You know, I remember being in a room with you in the beginning of, of when we were involved with Forge. And I remember you asked the room, you know, like, if the kingdom is truly here, what would be true? And it was crickets. We were we were quiet. And I remember I have this this memory of you booming like you guys this should be rolling off of your tongues and i thought about that for a long time why why was that not a language that i spoke and it, it just hadn't been in that in church for me up until that point to really focus on those keys of the kingdom um, as our our touch points of the of the values and, and where we should be uh, alerting people where we should be contributing uh, in in our world. I think that booming voice, I can still hear it. This should be rolling off of your tongues. Oh, and it I'm was, so sorry. it was, I get so no, it was, that, that's not a, that's, it was a, it was a yes. Why, why isn't that there? It was a, it was a great moment uh, for myself to, to really reflect on that. Oh, well, I was going to say, do you think, Brenda, then part of that I think is because so many of us came out of church traditions where we had the gospel drummed into us and the gospel was Jesus has atoned for your sins or Jesus died for your sins or invite Jesus into your heart, some, something along those lines, all of which I think is true. Um, but we didn't get the, the kingdom drummed into us, did we? I mean, we weren't taught how to, like, we weren't, there weren't tracts that we had to memorise about what the kingdom is like. There weren't kind of uh, lectures on that. We weren't kind of rehearsed in how to speak about that. So we just became kind of bereft in our language of the kingdom. Yeah, one of the things that I'm noticing, um, I just did a 46-hour a, a road trip over the last week. And so I had a ton of time just to sit in the seat in the vehicle and listening to certain things. I, and and I, it just, it, it, a thought hit me that our culture around us, and, and, for, and Mike, you just mentioned, just because people long for these things doesn't necessarily Christian, but I think culture is longing for some of these things. And one of the things I, I found was fascinating. I don't know. Do you guys listen to Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history podcast? So in this past season, I hope this is, if you're listening and this is a spoiler, spoiler alert, but in his little mermaid uh, series and, and in the last episode of that, he does a, a reenactment and they basically rewrite uh, the Little Mermaid. And I just remember sitting there, I actually began to cry as I was driving down the highway as they retold the new story where instead of Ursula being killed, she's embraced and she's forgiven and she's told that she's loved. And and it's just a whole, completely different narrative. But 
it, it, it spoke so much of what the kingdom was. And it, it was it was it was it just re- huge reminder that our culture is dying and desperate for these sorts of acts. But we tend to hold them back. Yeah, I found the same thing with uh, I've, I haven't even seen the first Little Mermaid. So I didn't even know Ursula died. So thanks for spoiling <laughs> that. for The 1992 me. classic. Sorry. Um, <laughs> what have you been doing in quarantine? <laughs> I don't know. I've got to get onto the old Little Mermaid before I, I come to Malcolm Gladwell's new Little Mermaid. But I found the same kind of feeling uh, watching Ted Lasso this last season. And in particular, the kind of Chris, I think the so-called Christmas special, which wasn't made at Christmas or played at Christmas, which is a bit weird, but the so-called Christmas special, which was just full of kind of hints or affirmations of Christian values. I don't know if, if you've seen that either, but like Higgins hosts all the all the players that don't have family for Christmas. And there's this, they have to keep extending the table to get more people in and around it. I mean, it's a beautiful image and kind of a fairly common one about the idea of like building bigger tables as acts of hospitality. But, you know, the way Ted and uh, Rebecca go and they give gifts to the poor and, uh, you know, the way Roy Kent, my favourite hero and man I aspire to become even more and more like, but Brenna might not like me yelling and... I, you know. I would, no, I, <laughs> okay, I don't not like you yelling. It was a good moment, but it's funny that you uh, identify with Roy Kent. Yes, I, in, in future I'm going to be saying, Oi, Brenna! <laughs> um, but but uh, the way, you know, he spends Christmas night trying to find a dentist for his little, little niece and all that. Like, it was just full of, like, you know, taking a child door to door, like trying to find healing for her and building bigger tables and giving gifts away and um, and it was a Christmas special and yet you know there's no mention of Jesus and I'm not saying that they should have I don't want you know my secular television shows to kind of affirm my my religious beliefs or anything but in the past so many of those shows would have had some more explicit kind of Jesusiness about it yeah, I would say that's a classic example, and maybe the Gladwell one is too. I haven't heard that that episode, but it's like there's a there's a whiff of the kingdom, or they can kind of there's a taste of the kingdom, and they're yearning for it, and but there isn't any anchor points for it, and where it comes from, or how it's generated, or how do we how do we become the kind of people that build bigger tables, or what has to happen to us in order to be kind of the people who aren't focused just on our pleasure but caring for our little niece or whatever the case may be. What has to happen with us for that world to emerge? There's no real talk about that. There's an assumption that maybe if we just worked harder at it or all pulled together at it, then we would create that world where Ursula gets forgiven and, and reconciled with. But but there's no evidence that that's ever been the case given the kind of inherent kind of brokenness in the human condition. And so I think that is the peculiar thing that that Christians ought to bring, although I don't think we're trusted to bring it any longer, but we ought to be able to say we want that too, but we also feel that there's something within us collectively and individually that needs to be healed and restored in order for us to be the kind of people that are more likely to be able to kind of help foster a world like that. You mentioned the idea of, of bringing the gospel forth and, and over the kingdom. And I, I wonder, is it fair to say, because we've we've put so much emphasis on counting uh, people, money, you know, assets and buildings and things like that, that we, we almost feel like we have to bring the gospel so that we can 
convince people that we can convert people so that we can be able to count more of those things that we we put the the kingdom on the back burner. Yeah. Well, and also you're not doing this, but I should reiterate something so it doesn't look like I'm doing this, but the gospel and the kingdom are not different things. I mean, I mean the gospel is the good news. That's all it says. It's good news. There's some news here and it's good. That's all that word means. But what is the news? It's the news yeah. of the kingdom. So, you know, they're the same thing, but yeah, we have separated them in some respects. And Terry, I reckon it's probably because this obsession with numbers and growth emerges out of the evangelical church growth movement from the 70s and 80s and 90s. And let's face it, I mean, where, did, where, where does the evangelical megachurch, like, where did it take root? It's in the Sunbelt states, right? It's like, it's Southern California and Texas and Arizona and Florida and but, I mean, you're dealing there with white suburban neighborhoods where the kingdom has come. Like, they're wealthy. They're safe. They, their kids are at good schools. Like, there isn't a yearning for justice or peace or healing or something. There's, there's a sense in which, yeah, we got all of that. What do we actually need is some existential peace that we can have knowing that we go to heaven when we die. And so in that context, it felt maybe as though, yeah, we don't need to talk about those things, they're assumed. What you need to do is repent and give your life to Jesus and come back to church. And so the context kind of shaped it as much as whatever kind of theology uh, was working behind it. But, you know, even in those contexts I've just mentioned, now it's impossible for us to continue to pretend that the kingdom has come, as it were, and that there's something kind of pure and beautiful about America that we just need to get back to. There's now a sense that, yeah, okay, it, this isn't working even in kind of white, you know, middle-class suburban uh, neighbourhoods much any longer. And so kids that grew up in those neighbourhoods are the very ones who are saying, you know, flipping the bird to all that, you know, to, to not only suburbia but to the whole church experience as well. So it didn't augur well in that sense by uprooting a whole generation of Christians out of the world and and making them ill-equipped to to own their faith when they grew up and re-entered back into the world. When you think back to starting Small Boat and and as you have changed in and grown um, in your leadership as a leader in the missional movement um, for yourself, how has how you seen yourself as a leader changed over that time? Well, a lot, because I mean, that was 20 years ago. Um, I, 20 years ago, you know, I had come out of the church growth movement but I hadn't fully shaken it all free in lots of respects. So I still I still liked a kind of a, a bit of a flashy event or a kind of a cool, um, a kind of a touchstone kind of thing. Like we started an art gallery, like come and check it out. Or, you know, we've, we've started a, a coffee shop or a, um, a, a counseling therapy center or, you know, come and see these things. Or we, and we were doing a lot of alternative worship stuff back in those days, particularly inspired by uh, kind of Brits and Kiwis who'd kind of really um, pioneered some of that stuff. And it, there was a bit of a wow factor to it, which was totally alternative to church growth and all that kind of stuff, but it still had traces of the, come on, check this out. Like, this is really different, isn't it? And 
it was incarnational in that it was engaging with our neighborhood. And certainly those businesses we started were very incarnationally engaged. But how have I changed from that? I think I wouldn't feel the impulse to want to kind of do the, that kind of thing now. I would be much more inclined to say, what does it look like for us to kind of really analyze and understand and um, incorporate the kingdom into our lives individually and collectively, and then to engage in the world around us much more. Now, we did join things in our community, the Manly Environment Centre. We got involved in a, a bunch of stuff to do with kind of artists and in pub culture and the surf club. But I think I'd be probably more inclined to, to unleash a community of people to enter fully into the kind of fabric and the, the woof and the weave of our culture and less inclined to feel as though we had to kind of run stuff or do stuff. Not to say we wouldn't run stuff or do stuff, but maybe it wouldn't quite be as turbocharged now if I was doing it than, than, than back then. I feel like Small Boat back then was a transitional community. It helped people think about the transition out of what was and many have transitioned into now what should be. But, um, but it, yeah, it was a way marker along the way rather than a destination, I, I think. I resonate with that. And I think we're all in that kind of transition of recovery. <laughs> we're in recovery from church growth, all of us in, in some capacity or another and, and ongoing. And, you know, so as people are, are listening to this and, you know, you're just starting to dip your toe into thinking differently than, than church growth and, and feeling like you're behind or you got to catch up, we're all in process and we're all um, – just reorienting ourselves to Jesus and his kingdom and his mission. And I think also related to that, when you think about what kind of uh, spirituality did kind of church growth or or that, that yeah, church growth evangelicalism, what kind did it produce? And I mean, we're seeing now, not that some of us have known it for a long time, but people now more generally are seeing that it did, it produced a really kind of toxic spirituality, and particularly around leadership and masculinity and things like that. And if you listen to Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, it's like everyone keeps saying, oh, so that's not just Mars Hill, that's all of us. But really, I think everyone's like, ooh, tisk tisk Mars Hill. But, but really, that notion of that kind of muscular, uh, egotistic, uh, high-functioning, excellence-oriented leadership that invaded the whole church but we celebrated in certain leaders. Is that the kind of um, legacy that that movement gave us? And you think to yourself, what did Ignatian spirituality leave us? What does what does Buddhism produce? Uh, what what does even like you know yoga and meditation create? Like these are movements which are about self emptying, about kind of uh, about the, the the way in which we kind of as it were, put death to the ego. It's about a, a kind of a, a notion of, a, of, of killing off the exalted self. And yet a lot of that kind of church growth model fashioned a spirituality which was not about quieting the ego but celebrating the ego. And I, I think, you know, aside from whatever mistakes in terms of ministry strategy uh, might have been present in that. I think the overarching legacy will be what kind of people did it produce? And the answer is like, not, not good. And to your point, Brenna, we're all, you say we're all like trying to work our way out of this or detox on that. And I think particularly 
particularly high-functioning men, it, there's there's another layer of that that we have to kind of somehow detox from. Like it, we still have this impulse to have to know stuff and to have to do stuff and make stuff and produce stuff. And uh, we still think somehow there's a brand that's got to be fashioned and a, the word's got to get out. And, and I don't know, forget about Mark Driscoll and all the excesses of all of that, well, you know, James McDonald or or um, Bill Hybels or any of that, like, aside from all of those, like it's easy to say, don't be like Ravi Zacharias. Of course, he's an arsehole. Don't be like that. That's like, that's just heinous behaviour. But it's harder to ask the question, like to what degree has that kind of egotistical form of masculine leadership invaded the kind of person that I am, even though I find it repulsive and I'm trying not to be like that. Uh, when do I find myself falling back into that? And I, I'm even seeing it mix into almost like a false kingdom ethic where you, you'll see people that they'll, they're, they're people that we would think of as, oh, that's a great man of God. And it is the self bravado, you know, it's the, the that masculine thing. And, you know, no one that has done anything maybe from a outright abusive, but they're holding on to a posture that is. It is. It's very abusive. It's very harmful to the kingdom. And even looking back, I remember I've had the privilege of being a part of four different church plants over the last 25 years. And those early church plants, they all took on an element of, you know, you've, you've, you've got to be a man. You've got to you got to fight sin and you have to be courageous and all of that sort of thing. And and looking back, I don't see a lot of I don't see a lot of Jesus, right? And I know you're in the process of rewriting re-Jesus, kind of the second edition, and like looking at those ideas of the 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 values of of what Jesus was the epitome of, we don't we don't see that in, in a lot of these guys. And I didn't see it in myself. And you know, I'm I'm a recovering I have to recover from that because I was guilty of it. And it it's one of my biggest regrets. Yeah, and you'll see it in like big um church leader gatherings and events you you walk around the corridors or the the kind of the area where they have all the kind of sponsors kiosks and all that kind of jazz and everybody is lecturing everybody about the thing they ought to know not just the person at their booth like hey sign up for my thing that I'm spruiking here I mean that's that's the contract they've got so they're doing but you walk down a corridor and you're just over here, like as you're walking down and someone's like, you know, I found the three things I need to do. Or, you know, you know what you need to do? Have you read such a, like everybody knows something. And it's like, it's exhausting. And I just think, I don't know how, Brenna, you feel as a woman, but um, in those contexts, but uh, even as a man, I guess maybe because a bit like, you know, an alcoholic who like, you know, w- walks around judging everyone on how much they're drinking. Um, maybe it's like I'm a bit like that. I get all a bit judgy about it. Like, oh, guys, like just be free, you know, just just open yourself to each other to, to hear and to meet and to know another without feeling like you've got to give them the answer or the book they should read or the three steps that they should do. And I just find so much of that is... Um, it's just contrary to the great spiritualities throughout history. I don't think anyone's going to look back, you know, in, in hundreds of years' time and say, 
oh, you know, conservative evangelical spirituality, you know, that's, we're trying to get back to that or sustain that. It's just, um, it's, it's a, a failed practice. Anyway, so uh, Brenna, what, what, how do you respond as a woman when you encounter some of that stuff? You know, I think, so I'm an Enneagram 3, so it's, it's interesting as a woman entering into some of those environments, and so it almost, I react of like, I need to keep up, uh, I'm a step behind already, and I gotta, I gotta get in there. I've had to just check myself, and even in the last year, I've been facilitating starting a new community, and we're intentionally starting with kingdom values to, to not create some of the old forms, but it feels like I'm doing nothing and it feels like I'm failing constantly. Uh, and so there's a real downward journey that's been the last year of just being okay to say, um, am I being faithful today to what God is asking me to do? And I am. And even if I'm failing, that I'm still going to keep moving forward. It's a real challenge. I think too, there's something with being the answer person that was a part of I don't know if it's that church growth, but, you know, we elevated truth so much, um, which I was listening to the Holy Post podcast, and they were talking about, hey, truth has a place, but actually truth isn't a fruit of the Spirit. And that, that really struck me that it's not, and we've we've elevated, and that's not to minimize truth, truth is important, but we've elevated to such a high regard and, and seen uh, faithfulness is being able to answer every question or have an answer for everything. Um, and that's really affected me in living incarnationally with my neighbors because my fear is that I won't have an answer to a question. And that's not what Jesus has asked me to do. And so I consistently have to repent of that and check that and to say, I don't have, it's not about me having the answers so that people can know Jesus. It's about me having presence with people so that we can live Jesus together. And, and that's been a real downward journey as well. And I wonder how much that's an American thing too, maybe, because I can remember some of my first trips to America, I'd be on panels and things and people would ask very specific questions like, you know, I've got a, I've got a church of 80 people and we want to cellularly divide. Should we go 40-40 or should we, should we divide geographically? Or, Well, now I would immediately think, I have no idea. I would have to meet your 80 people and I would have to, like, I'd need to spend time. How would I? But other people would be like, yeah, 44, split them east and west or boot. Like, it would just be like, and I would be on the panel thinking, wow, like these guys know so much stuff. But they don't know so much stuff. It's like, how can you know? Like, and I remember being on a, I won't mention this guy's name, but I've been on a panel with a pretty well-known kind of speaker and some woman said, oh, my son, He's a, you know, he's 12 and he hates church. His sisters love church, but my son hates church and doesn't want to go. It's a struggle every Sunday. What what do you think that we should do? How could you answer that question? Like, it would be like, well, hold on. I mean, I need to know your son. Is he being bullied at church? Is he, like, is, is there no boys his age there? Is there, I mean, you know, is, I mean, how many million questions would I need to ask in order to, like, but this guy was like, here's what you need to do. Like, identified as sin, get his father to do, like it was just like boom, boom, boom. And these these like six points of things you should do just rolled off his tongue. And I thought, well, I, I, I was smart enough to figure out, yeah, that is not helpful advice anyway. But the fact that you felt you just needed to have it and you've schooled yourself in having these answers is like crazy weird. 
um, as a non-American, I think, wow, that's pretty impressive. But also, I don't think so so terribly helpful. And then I think it was in not this latest, but the second last episode of uh, the Mars Hill podcast, like the 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 Mark Driscoll inclination to be able to identify when things are demonic and uh, identify that God told me this is what the problem is. It's just a it it hyper spiritualizes this kind of answer man. Thing that you're talking about, Brenner, which well can be extremely dangerous and 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 very hurtful or harmful uh, if if you're not being responsible. So you're not going to mention the name, but we all know that was Hugh Halter, right? <laughs> no, no, that was not <laughs> not Hugh Halter. Well, one of the one of the things that I you know I've I've tried to practice in in, in my own plant that we we did years ago uh, that was immensely inspired by small boat. So thank you for that is like, what are the core values of an organization as, as a group of people? What are your core values? And it's funny in, in the early church plants that we're a part of, and I've been a church plant catalyst for 15 years and 90% of the church planning uh, prospectuses that hit my desk, the core values are always, they're not necessarily kingdom values. They are excellence. They are relevance and, uh, uh, smart teaching, those sorts of things. And they lack love. They lack humility and the, the, the arrogance and ego that it takes to, to do that. If, if you don't have values that put those things in check, it's, it's very, very easy to, to, to go overboard on some of that. Yeah. And you'd have to ask, does, does excellence by its very nature point you to Jesus? Now, now I know people who are committed to it say it does. It's like, oh, when people see excellent music or excellent Whatever the case may be, they're they're drawn to the the object of of that particular thing's attention. But I'm more inclined to think you're drawn to the excellence of the one who's delivering it to you. And yeah, it, clearly, excellence is not a biblical uh, value. It's not a value of the kingdom. Some people point to oh well, uh, you know, all the the kind of beauty and opulence of the of the the, the temple of Solomon's temple, but that's all you got pretty much. And you don't find Jesus speaking about it or pointing to it in any sense. So yeah, I think you're right. Like we have um, objectified things like excellence, which then takes an enormous amount of time to become excellent at something, which then takes you out of engagement in the world because you're in your church bubble becoming excellent at the thing you're doing, whether it's preaching or worship leading or music or art or whatever the case may be. And, and all it does is just exacerbate this whole kind of alternative universe of the kind of Christian community, which then forces you then to have to mobilize people to invite others to bring people to that thing. So look, I mean, if you're a great musician and you you, you can like re- really worship God in the excellence of your craft, great. I mean, it's a bit like um, Eric Little, you know, from Chariots of Fire. I, I feel when I, when I run fast, I feel God's presence. Like he just made my body to do this. And I feel like I'm offering this body back to him when I do what he made me to do. And you could say that about music or all sorts of different things. But the idea that it should become a value, a sort of corporate value of the church is, I think, really unhelpful and unmissional in its in, in the long run. But yeah, what does it look like for us to be a community committed to justice and to, to maybe back to something Brenner said before, Often, if you, I mean, you're committed to justice in the community, you're going to feel like a failure an awful lot of the time. It's like, 
you know, when do we win on the justice one, God? Like, when does justice get, like, established? That's just, like, a lifelong task of commitment to that. I mean, uh, I was talking to a woman last night who works in the child protection unit in our Department of Justice here, and it's like, uh, that's not a Christian ministry, but she's a Christian protecting children. And it's like, it's one step forward and six steps back, like every single day of her life. And it's like, I, I was saying, how, why? How do you keep at it? Like, not, not why, like, get out, but thank God you're there. But like, how can you keep doing it? And it's like, what else can I do? I mean, it's this is a calling on my life. So as people who are called to kind of promote, to speak about, and to demonstrate justice in our communities, yeah, it's going to be very hard to point to all the victories that you've got. Or likewise, if it comes to peacemaking or reconciliation or even healing for that matter. So, yeah, we commit ourselves to um, to the kind of a really messy process of not being able to point immediately to really clear wins. I mean, she did talk about how the local minister for justice here in Australia had just flown back from the United States some time ago and um, quickly needed a policy on his desk and quickly do it now. And she managed to write a quite radical child protection policy over a particular area. And because he was so rushed, he just adopted it and it was it was kind of actioned. And she was saying, I just know that was like, if he had time to think about it, he would have rejected it. But I just know he was under pressure and he accepted it. And for her, it was like victory. Like we did something. We protected some children. Like my life is worth living. I, like you have moments like that, but that's not every day or every week. And uh, and I would say it'd be the same in church, church ministry, whatever kind that looks like. If I'm mobilizing a group of Christians to work with their neighbours to be committed to peacemaking and reconciliation in our neighbourhood or our city, you just have to free yourself from the need to have to be able to have like really easily measurable or immediate victories. So one of the things that uh, Brenna and Terry and I are doing this season is we're taking a look at this book called New Power. And it's just a, a, a cultural analysis. It's talking about how how the way that power is used now, it's shifting between saying, you know, here are the old power standards of everybody up here at the top is the genius. They have all the ideas. And now it's the idea that power is, is how do you channel it? Like power is out there. Everybody has it in some form or fashion. And in the book, they talk about that idea of excellence. And it was interesting because they hold up at the opposite end of excellence is not mediocrity, but it's participation. And they use Nadia Boltz Weber's, um, what is her church called? The the church for uh, the house for all sinners and saints, and how she says they are anti excellence, uh, pro participation to the point where when somebody shows up at their gathering, it's like, guess what? You get to participate. Oh, you're not a Christian? It's it's fine. You're going to participate. You, you want to help us plan Easter next week? <laughs> you know, it's it's the idea that the opposite of excellence is everybody gets a part to play. And when you start talking about a, a kingdom value, to me, that seems like a kingdom value. I agree with you. Excellence is a good thing. But how do you let everybody play? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> um, uh, don't take this the wrong way, Alan, but like in, a, in a, the Christian community I'm part of now, we refer to the Alan effect because there is a guy in our, in our community called Alan who whenever there's the kind of open engagement or uh, general participation in something, he will say something completely inappropriate or utterly 
off track that has nothing whatsoever to do with whatever is happening. And so occasionally it'd be like, um, how are we going to countermand the Alan effect here? Because Alan will <laughs> say something and it will be completely irrelevant. So, but but that's participation. That's the risk of participation, isn't it? Yeah. It's that there's there's always an Alan and maybe yeah. more than one Alan. And and but what do we do? Silence Alan? Well, yeah. Like if it was if we were committed to excellence, we would silence Alan. And he's a older uh, single man with. I think a fairly lonely man in some respects and here's a group of people who allow him to play and his contribution doesn't help much but he gets to make it and <laughs> but then if you consider that even further like leaving aside that like I have a sister with an intellectual disability in a in a community where excellence is valued she doesn't get to participate she her view means nothing her contribution makes no difference likewise with with children likewise with all sorts of people who just don't get to engage because only those people that had the resources to kind of learn a skill and to become really excellent at it get get to do it. So yeah, I, I, that's a that's a good line. I mean, I I, I don't yeah, a good line that participation is the opposite end of the spectrum from from excellence. What would you recommend planters and pioneers to think through as they create measures for their church plants? Yeah, but I think I would probably say what um, we have been saying, and that is, I would like in I would take a community into an intensive study of the kingdom and kingdom ethics and um, and in particular, you know, teaching of Christ, the, the, the ethical teaching and the Sermon on the Mount and in order to then, out of that fashion, some, uh, whether it's a rubric, at least some um, horizon points that as a community we would be kind of aiming at and, and working toward, yeah. Mike, really appreciate you being on the podcast with us. Really appreciate your thoughts. Thank you so much for the time and looking forward to you actually being free from quarantine, man. When did you say? October what? Well, October 11. When I will be free from this island, I don't know. I mean, uh, <laughs> not, do you know that the, the states in Australia are fighting so much? Like, you know, there's some that have very little COVID and others a lot. And so it's like you can't even cross state borders like, you know, how I'm ever going to get off this whole island again, I don't know. You may never see me ever again. So <laughs> this could be my goodbye, my friends. <laughs> Remember me fondly. Yes. Well, we're we're really hoping forward, uh, looking forward to maybe seeing you in March of next year. Um, you know, hopefully you'll be able to come in. Uh, you know, that's where we have our next big, uh, really the Forge Tribe gathering down in Orlando at a particular conference. So really hoping you can make it then. Yeah, well, I hope so too. Yeah, I, I do. I am aiming for that. So yes, let's hope so. All right. Well, thank you so much, guys. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Forge America Missional Podcast. Forge America longs to see the reign of God revealed in the everyday spaces of life. To do this, we partner with local movements to mobilize the people of God to participate in the everyday mission of God. If you'd like to know more about Forge America, feel free to check us out at forgeamerica.com.